0: You're listening to the City Lights Podcast. City Lights is a church located in Greenville, South Carolina, devoted to building family, blessing neighbors, and bringing good news to the nations. Thanks for joining us. You've got Mark chapter 5 with you. Uh, I would love to jump on in. Have you guys been reading Mark during the week? It's a good book. Somebody said, why would I read the long version of the gospel when I can read the shortest, quickest one? So there you go. If you were a crib notes, spark notes person, if you're action oriented, you don't want to have all that melodrama, pride and prejudice, you're more of a gladiator, just jump into Mark. It's a good one. And so Mark is all about uh, the suffering servant. And uh, he says in Mark chapter 10 that he wants us to understand. Um, because people can oftentimes be misunderstood in their motives and intentions that he did not come to be served, but to serve and to offer himself as a ransom for many and uh, what, what we've noticed about that, what that means, is uh, he's, he's pretty okay with his identity and his mission um, being a mystery and sometimes a secret to people. That the first words out of his mouth when something crazy happens for the kingdom of heaven is not go and tell people, start a YouTube channel, get everybody famous, all that kind of thing, but it's to be quiet and, and allow the kingdom of heaven to move um, through faith and not through hype, not through celebrity, but through serving. Uh, he, he gives that little sermon and, and uh, like Sean was talking about that he says, you know, the kingdom. Um, you got to You watch out. You got to watch it. You got to watch for it. You got to look for it because it's 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 just not on the spotlight. It's a, it's a small little thing. Um, because if the way we are, we always think bigger is better. We think that faster is is further, and it's not always true. That's not always true. And 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 so if we didn't hear those things from Jesus, we might think that the cup of cold water, that the um, the care of a child, that the forgiveness of a spouse, we might think that that was nothing. But every actually, he's saying it's everything. It is the thing that moves things forward. And, and then lastly, you know that, that the kingdom of heaven is not based on statistics. Like there's all the time. It's not just now. or 2023, the statistics are all the time. The statistics are not in the favor of the kingdom of God. But yet the statistics always lose to the kingdom of Jesus. That, that as he serves, it finds out he's over the creation. He's over the, the fallen world. He's over death and disease. That as he serves, he's actually king. And, and then ultimately, ultimately that as we walk out as servants, we're, we're, not, we're not going forward on statistics. We're going forward on what he, what he says. And so all of that is to say that serving is not a doormat. Serving is reigning, according to Jesus. And there will come a time when the kingdom of heaven is not so small and subtle. And it's not such a secret. And there will come a time when, when actually it's the prevailing tree that offers shades for all of the nations in, in the new heavens and the new earth. And so as we wait, we know, we know that... Uh, that, um, that, the kingdom of, that the kingdom of heaven is advancing through serving. That serving in the churches is, is reigning, is what he says. So, uh, it went from 70 to 30. I'm mad about my fall. I feel like November has been rude. It has been confrontational. I felt like it just knocked on the door with its bags, and it's like, I'm moving in. I, don't, I didn't even ask. I didn't even... It's like that person that doesn't text you. They just FaceTime you. Like, text me first, dude. Free for a chat. You know, just common decency, guys. You can't just... November's just coming in hot, you know? And, uh, and so, you know, what happens in November catches you off guard is that you have to relearn how to live in the wintertime. You know what I'm talking about? Like, like, uh, like I, I, I had to figure out, first of all, do my jeans fit? Uh, I got to check that in the, in the, in the wintertime if my jeans are still going to work for me. And then from my daughter's vantage point, she's just telling me, like, apparently I'm not allowed to wear skinny jeans anymore, so now I'm in a complete identity, identity crisis of what, what it is I'm supposed to be wearing and the shoes that go along with that, you know? Um, the wintertime is a time when you have to redraw the lines of authority of who gets to touch the thermostat. What are the, rule, what are the rules here? Well, I mean, are you just allowed to change five degrees in the middle of the night like that? You just, like there's choking me in my sleep. And then just below that is like, you can't just change the degrees like five degrees without asking. That's tyranny. You can't just do whatever you want. You can't, you know, all that stuff. And so, um, and so, I you know, I would like to have thought, you know, I'm the one that wants it colder. And Kyra's no, I'm I'm just the wuss. And I'm like, I want it so hot in my house. is what's going on? And so I changed it. Kyra doesn't know. Don't tell her. And um, I changed it up because she had it at 55, y'all. She she she's she's very rustic, and she's like, save save the power. Why do we got to be so needy? Wah, you know, I'm like, it's so cold. Because, because one of the, this is what happened to me while I was typing my little sermon today, is, um, is one of the experiences uh, that you have to get reacclimated with because you forget about it is the experience of numbness, you know? Uh, like when you get in the shower and, and, your, and your feet are so cold that like, what is it when the, when, the, when the water hits it and that feeling of like, I'm not frostbitten, but it was close. <laughs> I could have lost one there, you know? I could have woken up without a toe, like it got close, you know? Um, and I'm typing this little thing, and I'm like, my is not you know, just won't do that. I'm from New York, and I used to go skiing. And I remember for my 16th birthday party, I was so cold because uh, I was trying to be a tough guy. And they were like, Oliver, why do you look like Jack Nicholson? And the joke, like, why is your face not working? And I'm like, I can remember it, you know. So, so the, one of the experiences is uh, it's actually a non-experience. One of the experiences of winter is um, is numbness, the lack of feelings that we experience sometimes. And uh, and when we experience numbness, whether or not it is we're, you know, doing doing painkillers because we're really, like, in a really serious surgery situation or just our leg falls asleep, Um, or maybe, you know, we have, like, a severe injury or an accident and we discover, like, for a second, maybe I can't feel the thing that I should be feeling right now, that, like, terrifying moment, is that um, although numbness, although sometimes sought out and and, and welcomed, uh, is something that we would invite for temporary, but we do not want to experience forever. That moments of numbness, the lack of feeling... Um, intuitively and in an eerie way, are not normal. That not feeling things is not the way it ought to be. That, that, that numbness is not normal. And so um, when, when we experience the, the threshold there of feeling and then numbness, um, we, 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 we recognize that the sensory five senses and the ability to touch something is really what allows us not only to survive, but what makes life mean anything in the first place. That like what is life If I can't um, feel the kiss um, of a child when I kiss them goodnight and read them a bedtime story, what is life um, other than feeling the wind at your back in a boat or even some of the negative things of life of touching a stove and knowing it's hot and then moving it and to, to be thankful for at least the feeling of pain to teach you the reality of danger? Uh, even the feeling of, of, of emotionally being betrayed and backstabbed, better have loved than have lost and have not have felt anything at all, or even, even all of the experience of being punched in the mouth or whatever it is that we've experienced in terms of touch, if you surveyed the room and surveyed your heart, that you would come down to this conclusion, it would be better at least to feel something than to feel nothing. That the conclusion of life, at the, at the bottom line assessment of life, that if it was between the choice of feeling pleasure and pain or numbness and nothing, I would rather feel something, anything, rather than nothing. I would rather feel something rather than nothing. And and so uh, we're reminded then, at at this point even in our life, like there is somebody right now in a hospital bed that would would do anything to feel the pain of the ingrown toenail that you have in your toe. Like they would trade their pain for your pain. Even that pain is better than some people's pain. There's people in a hospital that wish that they had your pains. There is, um, this Thanksgiving, there is a pain in the neck waiting in your kitchen or in your dining room and there's some uncle that you're going to have to put up with again, right? And at the same time, There's also somebody in a prison system right now that wishes they could be at that table if only they could trade their pain for your pain. They would rather feel something than nothing and rather have loved and have lost and not have loved at all that between the alternatives, I would rather feel something even if it's negative, even if it's painful than nothing at all because numbness isn't normal. Or there are people that um, it's hard to remember sometimes I think as believers that do not know the touch of Jesus. That like it's not just it's been a long time since I'd, I don't even know that there is the touch of Jesus. And they would trade your pain for their pain. And so feeling something, when it comes to feelings, although there, there's all sorts of experiences and, and um, uh, paradigms and breaths and whiffs of, of the experience of, of feeling, it would be better to feel something than nothing. And as we get into uh, Mark, chapter, um, Mark chapter 5 today, the story is going to slow down a lot. Everything is very fast-paced in the book of Mark, but there are points when the narrative slows. And when we slow the narrative, we can sense it and feel it in a different way than if it goes too fast. We can feel the story, not just understand what the story is doing. And it elevates this this thing that happens within all the Gospels, and that is that there's something that happens to a human when Jesus touches them. There's something indelible, something um, unavoidable and unmistakable about when Jesus is teaching and when he's talking and when he hears somebody and sees something that's very powerful. But in the Gospels, there is a a watershed copyright moment that happens when Jesus touches somebody that makes something true of that person a second before he touched them. There's something that can't happen until he touches them that can't stop from happening once he touches them. There's something about the touch of Jesus that's significant about what, what Jesus is doing in his work. And so we're going um, to take two Sundays, starting with this Sunday and then going on to the next Sunday, to talk really about two different stories that are really woven into one story. Two different stories of first, uh, a woman with an issue of blood. Um, she's been bleeding for 12 years, which makes her unclean and embarrassed and lonely and marginalized from her community. But we're also reading about a different woman uh, who is the daughter of a synagogue leader named Jairus. And these two stories are interwoven. The beginning, middles, and ends don't start and stop all at once. They weave together in in a narrative. This is the first time that women are prominent as um, a character in the book of Mark, which draws our attention. That both of the women are suffering for a period of 12 years. That the the girl, the little girl that's going to die, is 12 years old. And the woman's been suffering with this blood issue for 12 years at the same time. And both of them, because of death and because of disease, are unclean and unable to reach and feel the touch of Jesus. All of that, we would read and understand their story to to reflect back and understand our story. That their story is our story. That there's something about the gospel that, like, Jesus limits his omniscience and his omnipresence to be human and to be tempted and suffer the way that we suffer from day to day. And so he doesn't all the time know or or, or, or foresee the things that are going to happen to him on a day to day. That's a very interesting paradoxical problem, that Jesus limits his omniscience and his omnipresence to not know everything that's going to happen before, before it happens. And, and it creates this theological paradigm that God in, in, in his spirit is everywhere, right? But he's not doing all things at all times. Romans 8 says, regarding our suffering, that he works all things together for good, but he doesn't make everything good over, overnight. That there is a process and a procedure as we, tr- as we trust the process of God's plan, that it all does lead to good and glory, but it's not all at once. And so there is a pain of knowing the promise of God, but waiting on it. That the, that the man's desperation for the, for the daughter gets postponed and has to wait for the woman that's already been waiting for 12 years. And so all of that helps us understand their story, if we can understand our story, is that there's just something that doesn't happen until Jesus touches it. Like, um, I've given messages before, and sometimes you guys will come up to me and be like, man, it was great that you said such and such. And I smile and nod, and in the back of my head I'm thinking, I didn't say that, you know? Like, I don't know if there was some other Asian pastor that said that to you or you're at another church, but like, I didn't say that. Like, I can genuinely tell you as a pastor that all that's said in here is not all that I say. That, that like, we give sermons and we read Bible studies and we listen to Max Locato or whatever it is that we do, but ultimately, we can't understand it unless Jesus touches it. And whether or not we're aware of it or think of it or feel it, he is in this room and he is touching each and every one of us in the ways that we need to be touched Because something happens in the touch of Jesus. That the book of Acts, like, shows you basically a before and after picture of the church as it's gathered in the upper room with all the scriptures and each other and everything that they need minus the one important ingredient, which is the Holy Spirit. And at Pentecost, what becomes true of the church a minute after the spirit falls is not true of the church a minute before it falls, that something happens at the touch of Jesus. That ultimately that um, that the scripture, you know, teaches us about about the touch of Jesus Um, uh, 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 cleansing, offering the cleansing of a leper um, and, and, and taking on the uncleanliness on, on him in terms of the crucifixion. And all that to ask us this question in our own personal stories and walk is when was the last time that you would say that you were touched by Jesus? Like, I, I love the John Piper quote, like, feelings are not God, so we don't follow feelings. But we do follow Jesus. And when we come in contact with the presence of Jesus, the picture of Jesus, and when our eyes are opened to the mirror to see the, the feebleness and the weakness and the frailty of my humanity touched by the touch of Jesus, and when we see the, 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 the compassion and the way that Jesus sees our neighbor, and sees our, like, like I'm not saying we follow feelings, but when we follow Jesus, feelings are involved. Feelings have to be involved. When was the last time that Jesus touched you in such, of a way, such a way that all the truth became obvious at once? that not only one, but maybe dozens of lies just fell off you. That something that didn't make sense for so long, about your parents, or so long about your divorce, or so long wrong, about what's going on in your life, that all of a sudden like you didn't get it and He touched you, and it just all became clear. Like we have to have a respect that God works through all things, but it works through the touch when He touches us. When was the last time that you opened up the scriptures? and you saw the words that are on the page, and not every morning is like this, but sometimes you open up the book and you see words, and sometimes you open up the book and you feel the word of God. What does it say on the word of Emmaus in Luke 24? That we felt our hearts burning within us because of the word of Jesus. When was the last time that you felt Jesus in a way that the circumstances and everything that added up and the ways that you did the cost-benefit analysis and you would have mentally cognizant, he let you work it all out to your own understanding, Sometimes that wisdom works, but, but all the, the wisdom and understanding went in this category, but then he touched you, and your feet got touched in a way that no matter what the consequence was, you knew that you had to go that way, that you felt the touch of Jesus. And so um, join with me in Mark chapter 5 um, as, we cons- as we consider two women uh, both suffering with the same ultimate uh, brokenness and, and seeking after the same thing that we're seeking after today, which is the touch of Jesus. Mark chapter 5, uh, verse 21. When Jesus had again crossed over by boat to the other side of the lake, it says a large crowd gathered around him while he was by the lake. And so you guys remember the itinerary for the Airbnb of Jesus is he's at the Jew, Jewish spot on the side of the lake, and he, and he calls Matthew, and he calls all these disciples, and, and, and he finds the people that are in the crowd and the people that are following them, and he gets them into the boat, and he brings out the doggy bags, and they're seasick all the way across the ocean and the Sea of Galilee, and he hits the one spot on the other side of the Gerasenes, and he, and, he, and he encounters some of the most demonic strongholds of the Vegas's of our world, right? The, 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 the gross and obvious grotesque side of sin. And so he, he goes from the Jewish side to the Gentile side. And then when they ask him, will you leave? He just does what he said, What did they say. And so he goes back to the Jewish side. So he goes to the Jewish side, and then to the Gentile side, and then back to the Jewish side. And, and, and we are remembering from this passage that Jesus came for all people. Jesus came for the religious sides of us, but also the ugly, sinful sides of, of humanity. That he comes for um, the preachers of humanity, but also the pimps and the prostitutes. That he comes for the people that live um, in Vegas and uh, the people that live in South Carolina. And he comes for uh, he comes for people that are, um, uh, he comes for people that sin like rock stars and people that sin like politicians. Because both of them need Jesus. And so he comes to this this religious side, and the last time he left, while, you know, the, Garrisons, the the Gentile people, were trying to kick him out for delivering demons. Remember, the last time he was ever in a synagogue, there was a plot to murder him. And he comes back and he confronts the synagogue leader. He comes back and confronts the synagogue leader, and it says, one uh, One of the synagogue leaders named Jairus comes, and he saw Jesus, and he fell at his feet. It's interesting to me that no matter if he's on the Jewish side or the Gentile side, God comes for all humanity, but he insists on meeting people by the lake. There's something about the lake that Jesus seems like he's always around the lake, like he's staying by the lake. And whether or not he's, he's delivering a demon or confronting religious um, uh, opposition to the kingdom of heaven, he stays by the lake. The lake is the place of chaos. The lake is the place of evil. The lake is the place of suffering. And all that to say, potentially, if we're looking for Jesus, that Jesus comes to all people, but he meets us at the lake, maybe the place that you would look for Jesus if you're looking for him, feel Jesus if you're numb to him, or dealing with the ugliness that's coming outside of you, needing him to touch you, then maybe the best place to meet him is in the lake. To meet him by the chaotic sides of your life, the confusing sides of your life, the suffering and painful sides of your life, as C.S. Lewis says, the the lake serves as the great megaphone. The pain of our life serves as the great megaphone for God's voice. Maybe we'd meet him by the lake. And so I get it in verse 22, this guy named Jairus. I get his life because he's a synagogue leader and I'm a little synagogue leader. That's the one thing about me me and Jairus is I get it. I, you know, have a lot of uh, some of you guys think I just sit around and drink coffee all day and read books, which is half true, you know. But I also fix the air conditioning. You know, I do all sorts of things. And I meet lots of pastors, and, and, and they're wonderful people. Greenville, South Carolina is a great place. And I have friends at New Spring and Hope Church and Studio and, 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 uh, and all these you know, wonderful places, Grace Church and, and, and Fellowship Greenville and so forth. And, and pastors are great guys. But I will tell you about pastors. The pastors are human, and you know that too. And that the thing about being a pastor is that uh, pastoring is about having a calling. Hopefully that you sense that the word of God is telling you to do something, even if you're good at it or not. And hopefully, you know, pastoring over years will give you some experience and you'll meet a few people and learn a few things and remember a few models. And then hopefully also pastoring comes with a level of, you know, you're gifted at something or you're doing something. And, and so you're giving that gift to God. But ultimately, what we see in the life of Jairus, and I would say in the life of me, is like all of that stuff goes out the door when someone's dying. Like when crisis hits the seminary doesn't matter anymore. And you're going to find out, and I'm finding out, that like, if somebody is dying, denominations don't matter anymore. What you think about free will and sovereignty, they don't matter anymore. We're just, at the end of the day, humans. And so, if you've ever had a pastor say to this, you know, maybe there's a calling, maybe there's a gift, maybe there's experience, but pastors have nothing more or less than you if you have Jesus. There's nothing that anyone has in this room, plus or minus Jesus, especially, especially when crisis hits. And so so he pleads with Jesus. He he pleads earnestly. My little daughter is dying, he says to Jesus. Please come and put your hands on her. Like, his seminary degree doesn't need to teach him about systematic theology. Just know that if his daughter is dying, he needs Jesus to touch her. It's that simple when it comes to faith. She will die if you don't touch her, and I have faith that when you touch her, she will live. He pleaded earnestly with him. My little daughter is dying. Please come and put your hand on her so that she will be healed and made alive. So Jesus went with him. And then this, this interesting verse down here, in verse 24, it says, a large crowd followed and pressed around him. And so, um, so this pastor, you know, this, this synagogue leader, comes to this moment of crisis, which is actually the death of his religion. Ironically, crossing over the lake, the lake was the, the suffering, the lake was the platform by which demons were delivered, but it's that same lake and that same savior which religion dies. Same lake, but in the, sa- the same conclusion, which is the salvation that's coming through uh, these these, uh, episodes and these scenarios that are happening around this lake. But watch this, it's very interesting. In a passage that is pretty much fundamentally dedicated, there's lots of feeling words, a slow narrative, and fundamentally uh, dedicated to people waiting on Jesus to touch somebody, both the the, the woman that's waiting on Jairus' daughter and the woman that has an issue of blood. And verse 24 says that while Jesus is being waited on to touch people, tons of people are touching him. Verse 24, a large crowd followed and pressed around him. That somehow as we're waiting in this narrative for Jesus to come and touch somebody, that he's being touched, but he's not being touched. That there's different kinds of touching. There's, different, there's just a different feeling of, of, of the way that somebody would touch somebody else. And Jesus feels the difference of these touching. A large crowd is pressing up on him, touching him, but it's not the same kind of touch as, as, as Jairus is asking Jesus to touch him. So we have this axiom and I think it's helpful, but it's also as hurtful as it is helpful. And in the Christian uh, circle and culture, there's this axiom called, I don't do religion, I do relationship. Have you heard this before or said this before? Or you believe this, is that I don't do religion, I do relationship. And so what I think we mean by that is I, I don't just read, I talk to God. I don't just think, I feel God in in, in presence. I I don't just, uh, I'm not just moved by the extra um, uh outside sources of carrots and sticks. I want to be moved from the inside out. Like, I think that that is all valid. But the question that I would ask myself as I think about the axiom of I don't do religion, I do relationship is what kind of relationship are you talking about? We're clearly reading in Mark that lots of people have relationships with Jesus. Demons have relationship with Jesus. It's not a very fun one, but they have a relationship. And so really I, I would ask, I would, I would subtext that and say, well, what kind of relationship and what, what I think Jesus is inviting us to as Christians it's not the relationship of religion, but it's the relationship of gospel. The kind of relationship we're talking about is religion is a relationship about God getting to us. Religion is a relationship. All to, Actually, you could argue that everybody has a relationship with God. That's not the big special thing, whether they know it or, or cognitively or not. Everybody has a relationship. What kind of relationship? Religion is the kind of relationship that says that the terms of the relationship is people have to climb up to God. That people have to climb and climb a ladder to get to God. But the gospel is the exact opposite, that God has done a work to come down to us. That is the fundamental difference of what the relationship is. Religion is about getting to God. Gospel is about God coming down to us. And so in that, what we would what deduce from all that is that, that the opposite um, of religion um, is not relationship. The, the opposite of religion is faith. The Romans says that the justified are justified by faith. In other words, the, the opposite of religion is trust. Rather than self Self-promotion, self-earning, self-salvation, self-righteousness that is receiving Jesus' righteousness and trusting in the perfect work of Jesus, that's the determining factor of relationship. And on the other end, therefore, um, the opposite of of gospel is not religion because gospel is belief. And if you look at the dictionary, we believe in the gospel. The opposite of the gospel is control. It is defining the terms by which this relationship work. If you use that metric, then religion is not a bad set of khaki pants with a weird comb over and a guy yelling at you about hell's and brimstone. Religion just becomes every human being that's ever walked the earth trying to climb their way up to God. So we can have religion of all sorts of kinds that aren't even denominational. We can have um, a political gospel that says because I stand on the right side of the aisle then I must understand God and therefore I'm justified by my politics. Or you could have, um, you could have a, uh, a gospel of, uh, of wealth in terms of I, I did enough things. Um, and I, um, God must love me because I'm doing, you know, because I'm wise and I, and I steward my research the right way. We have the gospel of poverty because I love poor people and Jesus loved poor people and therefore I must be better and I must be saved because I love poor people. The gospel of toleration, which means because I'm nice and I'm moderate and I kind of get along with everybody, that must mean that I'm more like Jesus and therefore I'm saved by tolerance. Or the gospel of intelligence because I'm not a dumb Christian I read good books and I think well about my faith and my doctrine, that must be the reason why I'm saved. Or the gospel of worship because I, I sing louder and I cry during worship and I scream and I lift my hands. That must mean that I am saved. And there's all sorts of sneaky little ways that control can leak into our souls. But mark this, that the lake, Jesus comes for all men, the sinners and the self-righteous, but he meets them by the lake. He meets them at the place where demons are delivered and and religion must die. Because at that point, no matter what kind of seminary degree you have, when the suffering comes, the control leaves the room. And so I think there's a bit of a template here that I just want to look at in terms of what Jairus does. I don't know if there's a code uh, for for how, how religion dies, how a legalist dies. But this is at least what happens to Jairus. And that is, first and foremost, that he sees Jesus. Some of the ways I think that we, we come into a faith that receives the gospel and not control is we have to hit a place of suffering where we can't control anymore. And one of the things that will happen in the growing of our faith is we have to admit the places that we have faith, but also admit there's things on Sunday that I sing that I don't believe. And as long as I'm singing them and I think that because I sing them, I believe them, I'm in a dangerous spot and I have a false sense of assurance because I don't really believe them. And so the guy prays, right? One of the people that confronts Jesus in another part of the story is like reaches out. He says, listen, I do have some faith. But if I were to get underneath the Instagram filter and the spin and the happy ending or the 90% of the truth that I'm telling, leaving out the 10% or the songs that I sing, like there's things that I say I believe that I don't believe. And ultimately, I think when he sees Jesus, there's just this honesty of I'm not hiding anymore. That honesty is soil and fertile for faith. Number two, I think that he falls at the feet of Jesus. Like, I think I think there's ways to have Jesus as a thing versus the thing. I think that in our modern age, that would be, you know, there, there's like a little bit of yoga. I like my little bit of yoga. And I like my little bit of, uh, of, of of kayaking. And I like my little outdoors. And then sometimes I have this little thing on Sunday that I do. And then this other little thing that I have. And then I keep my grandpa happy or whatever. Like, seeing Jesus a thing. But the, the, the idea here of the posture for both the man, Jairus, and this woman, is they throw themselves on Jesus and and physically lift him higher up than every other thing. Something like, we don't follow feelings, but there's feelings that will follow when I recognize he is the only one that's worthy. Like, I need to go to the doctor and get my heart checked. if, if, If I'm seeing the King of kings, the Lord of lords, and really perceiving him for who he is and who I am, feelings will follow that. It must necessarily follow that. And so he flings himself, he lifts him up, and there's an earnest plea. Like, I love the Alcoholics Anonymous line. It's like, do you want to be right or do you want to be well? Do you want your pride or do you want your healing? And there's a way to come before Jesus. It's their fault. Fix them. They need to, they're the problem. Blah, 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 blah. I just need you to fix it because I'm the good guy and those guys are the bad guy. It's just earnestness. Jesus, I don't care. I just want to be healed. There's an earnestness that comes along with the death of religion. So it goes on and, 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 and we're going to pick up with him in the next story. So now he's waiting. And I love a Bible that understands where we're coming from. Like it gets us. Like he knows what it's like to be in line and then have to wait for somebody else. And verse 25 says, and a woman was there who had been subject to bleeding for 12 years. Now, she had been waiting. I mean, I, I listened to this TED Talk from this Harvard guy, and he talked about, like, if you had the choice between killing five people or one, pe- one person, everybody raised their hand for one. But there's the distinct difference of, like, if you were a train conductor and you saw the two paths and you had to, like, turn the wheel to go and hit that one person, most people said, well, we would hit the one to save the five. But it changed if you were beside the guy on the track and had to push the guy over onto the track to kill him. Like, ethically, it made a difference. So there's a problem here, right? Like, they're both suffering. Which one do you, do you save? Do you save the dead one or the sick and suffering one? Do you save the little girl because she's sweet and little and innocent? Or do you save the woman because she's been, she's been suffering for 12 years and basically alone and an outcast? Do you save the, the, the sick one because she's still alive? Or do you save the dead one because it's a bigger miracle? Like, which one do you do? God is in this, uh, Jesus is in this situation, limited and omniscience in this story to give us an empathy for how we experience um, spirituality sometimes. But the easy translation here is this one in verse 25. Bleeding. Like, there's some things in Hebrew that are hard to get the proper annotation across and some things that are easy. Bleeding then means the same thing as bleeding now. Bleeding means organ failure. So there's a person in your life and they're suffering and you're just like, let them eat cake, you know? Hey, like, um, job's not working out, go have friends, you know? If your friends aren't working out, like, invest in your spiritual life. Like, there are times in our lives when none of those are working. When I lost my job, so now I can't afford the counselor, and now my marriage is falling apart, and now... I don't have any energy to exercise. And so do better doesn't work. And it, and it moves us away from let them eat cake to Christ, like point people's hope towards Christ. There are times in this season that you and I will feel not just some hope or a little hope, but no hope. And pointing people towards Christ. And so she's bleeding out. And when she heard about Jesus, she came up behind him in the crowd and she touched his cloak. And so, so get this. So this woman, I think, is a barrier breaker for us because this woman is in situations like most of us are in this room, but she does something different because she thinks something different. And here's what I think this woman is demonstrating us and four-minute miling for us, breaking the barrier that most of us don't do. And that is, we've all been a part of church or spiritual life where it feels like we're following and all we get is the back of Jesus and we never get the face of Jesus. That at every given season, there are times when the program doesn't quite fit you or the guy that's up there is preaching something that, doesn't, that isn't relevant to your life. Or you have a handicapped kid that can't come out to church because there isn't a program from there. Like We all experience what it's like to follow Jesus and get his back and feel like we can't get to his face. We, can't get, we all know what it's like to follow Jesus unseen. And this woman does something that is, that is audacious and bold and would take five minutes of faith from us and maybe would do some similar things. But this woman decides. She has this one thought. It all takes is five seconds of one thought and action on this one thought. And she realizes this, and it might be helpful to some of us in this room. She realizes that the back of Jesus is still Jesus. Like there's a point where where you're you're saying to yourself, well, I'm not welcomed, so I must not be welcomed. And this woman just, she didn't settle for that. She said, even when I don't feel welcomed, I'm just going to treat myself like I'm welcomed. There's places in your life right now, emotionally, spiritually, and you're like, ah, I don't feel worthy. But something inside of her. A disobey statistics, it goes diametrically opposed with the common flow of thought of what humanity does. Well, because people don't treat me like I'm worthy, I must not be worthy. Something grabs a hold of me and says, no, I'm not going to listen to them. I'm listening to him. And even when I get his back, his back is still him. And I'm going to reach out and touch him. that I'm not useful, right? That some of the times it takes five, five seconds of faith that, that, that even when I don't feel useful, God is still using me. You don't know what it's like when you're not in the room because you're not in the room. And you being here Living out your faith on purpose and intentionally and, and, and haphazardly sometimes matters greatly, matters deeply. And so I just wonder what it would be. What it would be, it'd be for us in, in the five seconds of faith, all that it, you know, that it would take is to, to ask, um, ask your spouse for that thing that you asked them 15 times before, but you, you're just going to ask them again because you have faith for it. Or that if you're here to, to mentor and you really feel like you have something to say or something to do in the next generation, like not waiting on the invitation, just going up and taking somebody to coffee. What could change in five seconds of faith? to not obey the cues around me, but believe in the identity of Jesus. The back of Jesus is still Jesus. I could reach out and I could touch him. So uh, verse 28, because she thought if I just touched his clothes, I'd be healed, immediately her bleeding stopped. And this is what I think the scripture would come to really tell us, like the main point of this, is she felt something. She touched Jesus and she felt it. She knew it was him and she felt it, even when she didn't see his face. Because she thought if I touch his clothes, I'll be healed, immediately her bleeding stopped and she felt it in her body and she was freed from her suffering. And so the question I want to I consider, and I think this scripture is asking us, is like, what does it feel like to have faith? What does faith feel like? And how would I know if I had faith? And how would I know if faith was missing? What does it feel like to have faith? This is lots of feeling words in this narrative. What does faith feel like? Hebrews 1, 11 1 says, Now faith is the substance of things hoped for, the evidence of things not seen. I'll read this again. Hebrews 11, KJV, the, that faith is the substance of things hoped for, the evidence of things not seen. So, Picture this as faith is a, is a stone. Like, if something has substance, it's not nothing, right? It's, it means if something has substance, it's, it's material, it can be measured, it can be weighed, it can be known when it's missing, when it's there, it can be big, it can be small. Like, faith is something. It's not just the idea, it's the reality of something. It's something, right? And, and evidence, evidence is an outcome. So if I took that rock and I threw it through the window, we would know that it was a rock because the window would shatter, because it's real, and so in, as far as I'm reading this and understanding from Hebrews 11.1 1, is that faith isn't nothing, it's something. And faith doesn't do nothing, it does something. And when you follow along the tracks of, of Abraham and David and, and Abel and, and, and the forefathers, Moses and so forth, like, you don't get the picture like they're sitting there praying and waiting for something to happen into the future. You're getting the picture that it's happening to them right then. Like if I go to the Joy of Tokyo and the mall and I go up there and have that little sample, we're not in heaven. Like, right now, this is not heaven, and anybody that tells you that has an overrealized eschatology, like, sometimes bad things still happen, right? But when I go up to the Joy Toki, and I get that little sample, I might not have the whole thing, but that was something. Like, I'm not waiting on that thing. I actually am experiencing it. I'm tasting the actual thing that it promises to deliver. Faith is the substance of the future that's actually right now and right here, and it's the evidence of things not seen. And so, in other words, here's what I'm saying. If we follow the experience and the testimony of this woman, is that is that sometimes feeling, faith doesn't feel the way I want it to. Sometimes faith is, is, is touching me, but I'm, I'm, something else is louder in my life that makes me ignore it. Sometimes, sometimes faith is loud and, and easy, and sometimes it's mis, misguiding, and I think it's faith, but it's just my feelings. But ultimately, we don't follow faith, and we don't, excuse me, we don't follow feelings, but we do follow faith, and faith has feelings to it. In this, in this passage, what it's saying about this woman is that she suffered, she had the feeling of suffering, the feeling of being unseen and unclean, but also the feeling of freedom, seeing the face of Jesus, and forgiveness. That it's both of these things, that that there's two times to follow Jesus when we feel like it and when we don't. But ultimately speaking, I think that this is encouraging us in verse 29. Immediately, her bleeding stopped, and she felt it. Like, it is not normal to have numb faith. There are seasons of desert and seasons of waiting, and we have to have accurate portrayals and categories for this. But if we are not sensing the presence of God, like, if I all at once am being touched to see the truth about me and the humanity in front of me and the mercy and grace of God. Like, if I'm not feeling something about that, I should check my pulse. If I've come and I've taken all of my idols and I've recognized the taste of them, that they're sweet and grown sour and they no longer satisfy me and I come before him in the altar of my prayer closet or in the front altar of a church and I lift him up above every other name, I'm going to feel something. And numb faith is not normal. We should feel something as we approach faith. We, we follow him when we feel like we don't. But this woman is saying that there is a way that faith would reach out and touch and feel the power of God. So there he is in verse 30. He says behind the scenes that what he's experiencing while she's experiencing what she's experiencing is that this. At once, Jesus realized that power had gone out of him. He turned around in the crowd and asked, who touched my clothes? Like this right here is just one of these Pandora boxes of theology. Like, wait, like, did he not know? Like, so she touched him and she didn't, he didn't know ahead of time? And then it's just this crazy, you know, chicken egg quandary, okay? So he's walking through his day, somebody touches him, and he actually has to ask other people what happened, like as if he didn't have a surveillance camera from heaven or something, I don't know. He limits his omniscience, like he literally does this to, I think, empathize with what it's like in this human experience and not have all the answers all the time. Who touched my clothes? He means it. He's not just doing that rhetorically. You see the people crowding against you, his disciple answers, and yet you can, you can, you can ask who touched me? Like he, he feels everybody's touch, but he's touched by faith. There's something about her touch that distinguishes the touches from everyone else. And so this touch is different. He said, who touched me? I want to know that one, the one that had faith on it. That touch, I want to know. Verse 32, but Jesus kept looking around to see who had done it. So I'm just going to run through bullet, machine gun style, on five things that I notice about this little passage that are really important but also paradoxical about our faith, and I think we need to wrestle with. So here it is, number one out of these three verses. I think if we're paying attention to this verse, we recognize that Jesus... Just like he refused the painkillers on the cross, Jesus refused numbness. He'd rather feel something and everything rather than nothing. And Jesus feels you. Like he feels your touch. And even when you don't feel him and you don't feel like he's feeling you, he feels you. He feels the nudge of your touch. He can sense that in him, and he's sensitive like that. Like there's a guy that can rob you on the train and bump you, and he can't, you know, can't feel the wallet that comes out of you because of the just and touching. All, all aside, the crowding comes and he still feels your touch. Most importantly, he, he mostly feels the touch of your faith. That there's something about this touch that's different from, from, from all the other touches that, that makes it so he can feel this touch. And third, that Jesus sees faith and power um, synonymous. Like in other words, this, that Jesus woke up and he had a plan and he was headed in a certain direction and this woman touched him and it changed his plan. And when, when he felt her touch, she was feeling suffering and being outcast and going through her day. And it felt like it was hard and it was painful. But he said, you know what, that, that actually, although it feels like it's pain, is actually the power of God. And if I were to translate it and recognize that, that what actually happened here wasn't just faith, it was power that moved out of me. It involuntarily moved out of Jesus, even when he didn't give her permission to do so. Because to him, the translation of faith is power, and power is faith in, in the kingdom of, of earth. Number four, this is pretty important. That faith moves us, but it also moves God. Like, there's a a very important, like, axiom that we understand, like, faith changes the prayer. Faith changes the prayer. Like, when I get up and I pray, I experience my day differently because I've centered myself on a certain idea, and I've prayed, and I've talked. But necessarily, if this is, we're going to take this uh, uh, theology to to face value, just take the reading as plain as the text is reading it. Jesus woke up and had a plan for his day, and she, she changed it with her faith. Like that that, that something about Abraham when he prayed for the innocent changed God's mind. That something about Joshua when he prayed for the sun to stand still. You have to have a healthy balance between sovereignty and faith. But something must have happened the minute after Joshua prayed it that was untrue the minute before we prayed it. That Joshua changed God's mind. That Moses as an intercessor. God actually went out of his way to make sure that Moses was quiet. Because he knows he's such a softy for prayer and faith. That he knows that if Moses prays, it would change his mind, so he actually tells Moses not to pray, so we won't have to change his heart, and he can judge the nations the way he planned to judge the nations. This is how much faith matters. This is how much faith matters. And so all that comes to mind, it comes down to this last conclusion, is that we experience, we're going to experience, like it's not going to change the direction of our salvation, but it will change the experience of our day. Power that that is transmitted to a person according to faith, 18 times it says in the New Testament, let it be done to you as you have believed is predicated according to grace, which means God woke up and decided to do good things today. No matter what you do, He's still going to do it. But it's also predicated according to faith. Your experience, whether or not there are people, this is what this text must mean to me, there are people that would be healed if we prayed for them and wouldn't be healed if they don't. That is a heavy onus to realize. And that is not in competition for the grace of salvation or the ultimate sovereignty of good and glory. But maybe it's that Jesus doesn't just know the future, He knows the future's and that ultimately the good and glory outcome will still happen, but we are going to dictate the experience we have in it. Eighteen times, he says, it's going to be happened according to your faith. It must mean that faith matters. It must mean that God wakes up with ideas and plans, but if he literally limits himself of what he knows and what he can see, and the woman touches him and changes the day, it means that, it means that faith can change what we see, but it also means that faith changes what God saw. That's a heavy mind bender. And so what does it feel like? What does it, what does it feel like? To have faith. Verse 33. Then the woman, knowing what had happened to her, came and fell at his feet. And here's the feeling of faith. What does it feel like according to her? She would give a testimony on stage in the spotlight that the feeling of faith is trembling in fear. It's all at once seeing Jesus. Seeing the reality of what was true and the way you spun it and lied and course corrected and all these manipulation tactics that we have. You fall at your feet and you lift him up above every other idol so you can see clearly because the pure in heart see God. And that's... Um, And all of a sudden, this truth comes to you and it causes you to tremble. Verse 34, he said to her, daughter, your faith has healed you. Go in peace and be freed um, from your suffering. And so I'll close with this. Um, uh, I've um, been a Christian for 20 years and and I've had the privilege of walking um, in big churches, small churches, charismatic churches, conservative churches, house churches, reformed churches. Like I've been a part of lots of churches and people are people and God is God. and, And ultimately we have our language and denominations and organizations and programs and preferences and those sorts of things. Um, but ultimately a lot of it is just human beings like using language and organization and, and ultimately the spirit of God is the spirit of God. There's one church, there's one baptism, one salvation. And I will tell you one thing when it comes to the charismatic church is that the thing the charismatic church gets right, if you've been a part of it or are part of it or maybe had good or bad experiences, the charismatic church, the charismatic church gets right is that the gospel is not talk, it's power. That ultimately like nothing gets done down here. Power is the, the definition of power is getting things done and nothing gets done down here unless Jesus touches it. You can put all the money and all the planning, and all the strategy, and it won't work if he doesn't touch it. And if he touches it, it could be the biggest mess and buffoonery. And if he touches it, something happens. So there's good theology in that, that the gospel is not talk, it's power. Okay? But here's the irony of charismatic church, is that for the church that emphasizes power over talk, they talk a lot. <laughs> and so all I mean by that, all I mean by that is that if you put a Baptist in church on Sunday and a charismatic in church on Sunday, the Baptist is just going to get the lunch on time first. Like, because the charismatic, you know, because sometimes you've got to move slow to feel it, right? So I understand. Okay, so these are all denominations. Pick your poison, right? But here's what I'm saying, is that if you are part of the charismatic church for long enough, one of the really great revelations that you could have if you sit in a charismatic meeting or a service is that if the meeting is three hours long, there can be so, you know, it'll, the music's maybe loud, and there's flags, and there's people doing prophetic paintings, which are swirls and circles and all this stuff. Like, there's all sorts of things that go on. But there, there are moments, if you're sitting in the charismatic church, when the music is, is going, maybe it's going or maybe it's not. Maybe, maybe things are loud, maybe they're not. Maybe the preacher knows what he's talking about, maybe he doesn't, right? But there's a moment between an emotional service and the power of God. That's a, that's a really big gift, because we can conflate and just say, oh, those people, the reason why they're so crazy is because they're emotional. Well, there's a mixture of baby in that bathwater. that when you sit there for long enough, you could feel 10 seconds. It could be the quietest moment or the loudest moment, but there is a difference between being a clanging song and the power of God. And it's so good to know the difference because here's what can happen to you. Then you go over to dry toast over here and the preacher's going on for 30 minutes, right? But somehow time flies faster in the three hours. And they are so unemotional and so dry toast and so stoic. But something on their lips talks about the blood of the lamb and the worthiness of his sacrifice. And I don't care if the music's going or not, Power is gonna hit the room. And it's so good to know the difference between emotion and power. There's a difference between your feelings and the power of God. And, and he's saying that when we touch him, it's apart from our feelings. It's that, it's that when we touch him, it's not something changes because of our feelings, it's because the power of God has touched us. And we feel it. Oftentimes, sometimes we don't feel it, but oftentimes we do. Okay, so I'll, I'll, I'll compare. I mean, you could. I, I mean, you could. I've sensed the power of God. You could feel the power of God tonight, reading Zacchaeus to your kids. Like it's not the vehicle. I love what Bible Project talks about in Nehemiah. We always use Nehemiah as a building project. Nehemiah means we're going to rebuild. It's Nehemiah is not a great building project building because the building gets torn down and misses the spirit of God in the end. Right? The point of Nehemiah is not building project. The point of Nehemiah is revival. And the point and and the and the moral of that story is you can't make a revival happen, but you can miss it you cannot be ready for it, right? So, so here's what I, I would like to present this little sermon illustration as we close. But if you go to a, a, a sit-down restaurant with your girlfriend or your boyfriend, and you sit down there, you know, you know what you're going to get. I was a waiter. They come to you five times. They hit you with, you want a drink? They hit you with, the, are you ready to order? They deliver the plate. If they, if they don't get a tip, it's because they didn't come back and check on you. If they check on you, you, say, is everything okay? And it's like, clearly, we're all eating. Everything's fine. You know, and nothing's on fire, and then they come back for the bill, and then if you pay them, that's the five times. Boom, 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 right? They hit you five times, right? There's a certain experience that if you come into a waiting place, a waiting table, and somebody doesn't give you your drink, you're frustrated about it. But there's another experience if you show up to a buffet. I went to a Korean barbecue volcano. Just block out three hours one day, okay? And just make it a moment. There's a difference when you sit down and you, and you realize that your experience in a buffet is not predicated and dictated anymore by the waiter, it's dictated by you. If you want more chicken wings, you can go get them. If you go online on a Google review and say the service is bad at a buffet, that's your fault. <laughs> like, there's a contract of the terms of relationship, right? So, okay, so, so, so what, is, what is Jesus saying with the parable of the seeds? Is it the parable of the seeds is that the the soil is so ready that it uses up all the seeds that fall from heaven and then is waiting for more seeds? Or is it that there's so many seeds available that it's covering the land, but the soil underneath it is completely missing it? Does Jesus present the kingdom of heaven as a sit-down or a buffet? This woman had a day in front of her that God didn't know about and Jesus had a day in front of him that he didn't know about, right? And the day changed because she decided to reach him. She changed Jesus' day and her day. So what's the point? What's the point? Is that, is that if you have a person that's, that's, that, that's living down here, they may be saved, they may be not saved, but, the, but their experience, not their salvation, is going to be deeply changed by the faith that they walk in. That faith is going to matter in the end, ultimately, and and, and and Jesus would not have said 18 times, let it be done to you according to your faith. I'm not saying that you can save yourself. And, and, and I'm not saying that if you pray for everyone, that everyone gets healed automatically. I'm just saying that the experience of somebody that has faith versus the rest of the crowd around him, all of them were touching him, but not all of them were touching him. Not all of them, not all of them were, were coming to him. Um, everyone had a relationship with him, but not everybody had faith. So... So this is the question I would have as we, as we close out, is I think that this story gets us. It knows what it's like to experience faith when we feel it and when we don't. And what it's like to almost like rather numb yourself to the feelings of faith so you don't have to like get yourself let down again. But nonetheless, it understands what it feels like to have to wait and, and to, see, to see God's working all things together, not meaning making all things good right now. And living in that faith. But mark the words. There's lots of feelings word. And she felt suffering. And she felt being unseen. Sometimes faith feels like suffering. And unseen and unclean. But it also feels like forgiveness. And freedom in the face of God. And some of that is not predicated on whether or not the waiter comes to your table at the right time. Some of that's predicated on you. Not to climb up to him. But to cry out to him. To say in faith. Like will you touch me Jesus? There must. This story must mean. That if somebody says I want you to touch me. And somebody says "Ah." come to me if you need me, that they're going to experience two different things. To cry out to him and say, will you reach me, will you touch me? So this is the question I have. How is it that you reach for Jesus? Do you feel the touch of Jesus? He meets all men, but he meets them by the lake. He meets all women by the lake, in your suffering, in your unseenness. Like, he knows the things that you believe, and he knows the things that you say that you believe. But when we come before him and see him fling our lives before him and lift him up above every other idol... And earnestly come before him and stop bickering and being, being complaining and, and, and all those types of things. And so we really put ourselves before him. He will touch us. It's like he involuntarily power just equation wise just touched faith because faith is power and power is faith in the kingdom of heaven. Where are, you, where are you sick and where are you reaching out? What if there's a lost person in your life that can't make it to Jesus and you're the gyrus in the story? And you're here to bring Jesus and ask Jesus to come to him. That that intercession, that's what intercession means, to stand between the person that needs to be touched with Jesus and and using your faith to intercede on their behalf. That your faith might not just matter for you, it matters for her. Who is dead and dying? Who is untouched and unclean and unseen? Who is getting the back of Jesus but, but longs for the face of Jesus? This is what our faith could tilt the scales for. The touch of Jesus. Thanks again for joining us. If you have been encouraged or challenged by this message please give us feedback by leaving a comment on this podcast for more information on our church visit us at www.citylights.cc